The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Hi there, I'm Lou Blaustein, and welcome to episode 18 of Green Sports Pod. Claire Poole, founder and CEO of Sport Positive, is one of the true leading lights of the green sports movement. In just two years, her Sport Positive summits have become must-attends for anyone who is involved at the intersection of green and sports. The London-based pool is the driving force behind the Premier League Sustainability Table, which ranks the 20 clubs in the most popular sports league in the world on a variety of sustainability metrics. The German Bundesliga, Ligue 1 in France, La Liga in Spain, and Serie A in Italy have joined, or will soon join, the Sport Positive League party. And now, Poole has added media to her green sports toolbox with the Climate of Sports podcast. Beyond her impressive resume, Claire is a font of green sports ideas and new approaches, That's why I was so excited when she said yes to doing a joint podcast interview that is running on the climate of sports and green sports pod. Tell you the truth, it's more conversation than interview, a chat about what's going on at the intersection of green and sports. And it's been very busy at that intersection lately, as you'll hear now on green sports pod. So, Lou, let's talk about the news and what's going on at the minute in the world of sport and sustainability. I think there's a load of stuff that we can get into here, and I'm excited to get your perspectives and share a bit. I'm um, excited to to hear yours as well, and I can honestly say there has never been a busier time at this intersection. There's a lot. There's a lot going on, isn't there? So why don't we start with, at the time of recording, This week, there has been a lot of viral coverage of the cooling towers behind the Beijing 2022 big air jump. So I'm sure those of you who are listening have seen this. It's been all over the global press. Um, The big air jump, where we've seen loads of the incredible action from Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics, is set right in front of the cooling towers of an old steel mill. So in terms of the environmental context of the games and the discussions, What are your thoughts and what have you heard and seen about this that's sort of worth us talking about here, Lou? Well, the way I internalize it is that at the end of 2021, which seems so long ago now, to me, the biggest story in green sports was that the big media discovered green sports. Yeah. And I was concerned that that discovery would wane after COP26, which was Mm -hmm. this huge event and sports, thanks to what in large part you were doing there on the ground in Glasgow, it just exploded coverage. However, with the Olympics, the coverage has continued apace. And so Mm -hmm. this imagery has just fueled, pun intended, Mm -hmm. more coverage and not from just green sports blog or or the narrower world that we live in, but Time Magazine, CNN, of course, Sky Sports, BBC, and all over the world. So to me, it's remarkableness is that it's unremarkable now, which is a big thing. Of course, the image is stark, but it should be no surprise because other stories that came out in the big media, as well as in our media, made clear that 100% of the snow in Beijing is man-made. Mm-hmm. So this just is a perfect illustration of that. What do you think? I mean, I it's the same as you. I think the image is so stark, and I think it gives you such pause for thought. I don't know if you've seen a lot of the social media coverage, but hellscape, the dystopian future, you know, athletes saying it feels like they're in a video game or some kind of virtual world. The feedback from that side in terms of it is it's very jarring when we're used to seeing games like this taking place in pristine mountain ranges and white snow as far as the eye can see and 
images that are synonymous with the Winter Games. And I think for, for me, the an interesting element and perhaps the start of the new normal, we've seen a lot of research with how few places in the world are going to be able to host a Winter Games going forward with our changing climate. But that to me is something that really is quite jarring, that we're seeing something really for the first time where we're not, we're seeing a Winter Games taking place somewhere where it's not really winter in the no. in the case that we're used to seeing of these incredible landscapes. Well, what's really interesting, and some media have gotten into this, is that in particular with the Winter Games, you had Sochi, which was in Russia, in basically a tropical climate, and you mm -hmm. saw pictures of you know people in bathing suits hanging yeah. out outside of the winter, you know, the ice venues, etc., and an authoritarian state, and then going into China with its authoritarian-ness. And because Olympics are so expensive, the IOC has a challenge as to where they cite these games if only authoritarian states with not great snow, you know, not great winter sports venues in terms mm -hmm. of climate are the ones who bid. Now, we know that 2026 is going to be in... Cortina and Milan, which, you know, should be better. 2030 has not been determined, but I think the IOC has challenges and climate is just making their political issues even worse. Yeah. And the interesting thing, I think, as well, and you, you know, obviously the work you do with eco-athletes and, and the athletes speaking out more, one of the narratives I found quite interesting, and it's something that because we work so closely within the you know, environmental sustainability movement and in the climate crisis, etc., some of the comments from the athletes I've found very interesting and not always massively helpful in terms of the same way as when it's unseasonably warm here in the UK, people are like, this is incredible. There's a heat wave in February. Hooray, we can have barbecues because we're human beings in that short term win is lovely but it's indicative of a much larger problem i felt a little bit the same with some of the comments from the athletes and it's not being negative towards them because they're speaking truthfully about how they feel about how actually the industrial landscape is quite cool when all the lights come on in the evening and stuff it's a very easily accessible venue they can walk to the venue in trainers you know it's easy for them to get to they're not trekking through mountains in snow boots etc before they compete and um, the quality some of them you know athletes come out and said the quality of the ski jump there in terms of the big air jump is the best they've ever used etc so positive connotations coming from some of the athletes about this when from a climate and environment perspective it's very very worrying in terms of the wider context but again I think this is the the narrative we're always facing with in this case convenience access the ability to compete and perform etc versus is this the new normal is this what we're going to come to expect now winter sports and, and artificial snow and industrial landscapes that is a great point, Claire. And so putting my eco-athletes hat on, you know, I think, ah, this is an opportunity for an eco-athletes or Protect Our Winters, which has so many winter sports athletes as ambassadors, to frame that point, hey, this is great, but we understand the cost that is being incurred now and in the future. So all it takes is a bit of framing to hopefully change the bigger message of that comment. But yeah. it's human nature, like you say, like a nice yeah. day in February. Absolutely. And it's it's no slight on those athletes because oh. that's their reality. And obviously all of them are thinking of, quite rightly, at that moment, performance first and getting there and performing their absolute best and trying to take a medal. And that, again, is, is what, you know, we've had conversations about this in the past. This is what you're working with with, you know, current professional athletes, isn't it? They've got so many, they've got so many things, they've got so much focus on a particular goal and a particular achievement that that's just everything. And then maybe in some cases with the likes of Jeremy Casey or others who we had on our podcast recently, they do a lot of environmental advocacy work as well. But at the minute, I would say that's more the exception than the norm in terms of that. Yes, it's definitely more the exception. And I think it will always be in, you know, no matter what we're talking about from a social issue lens, through a social issue lens, because not a huge amount of athletes are not going to, you know, step out on social issues. But mm -hmm. the question is, 
is it a minuscule percentage or a small percentage or a kind of moderate to small percentage? And there is a big difference between those three gradations. And when you can get, you know, significant numbers with credible stories and with powerful visuals to go with it, these athletes can make a big difference. So, and you know this, Absolutely. And, and we're getting more. So, and that's okay that it won't be everybody. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's important about people who care passionately about it, talk about it. And I think that leads us on to another recent news story of the Australian cricket test captain, Pat Cummings, launching Cricket for Climate, which is a great new initiative. He obviously was impacted last year by what they called in Australia the Black Summer bushfires and causing match cancellations etc competing in extreme temperatures extreme heats and yeah has launched now a new campaign which is great to see in terms of athletes taking these sorts of actions a great campaign and great to see something happening in cricket as well I think there is there is some work happening in cricket but cricket we see a lot of images of, you know, pollution at matches in Delhi. We've seen the bushfires. We've seen the extreme heat a few years ago for the first time ever. They changed the dress code rules at Lords here in London to allow gentlemen to not wear their jackets because the heat was so, it was such a warm day. So we're seeing these impacts now, but great to see people like Pat Cummings who have got such a platform setting up these sorts of campaigns and driving awareness and action. And speaking from the U.S. perspective where cricket is not a big sport over here. It's Mm -mm. really on the fringe. So most people are unaware that globally cricket, depending on, you know, what metric you're looking at is the number two or three most popular sport in the world. And so I believe that cricket needs to be part of this green sports movement because you're getting the global south when you get cricket, mm-hmm. you're getting the whole commonwealth when you get cricket, and it is growing a bit in North America, but the vastness of the cricket fandom mm. and a lot of the cricket fans, if you're talking about India and Southern Africa, are the people who are least able to deal with climate. So I actually think this is one of the biggest opportunities in the green sports world is in cricket. And with Ego Athletes, one of our champions is Joe Cook, as you know, Mm. from the UK, from England, at Glamorgan in Wales, actually. And he has been doing yeoman work. And I see a lot of opportunity and also in women's cricket as well, which is a growing force also. For good, yeah. And Joe... Joe and Ebony Rainford-Brent did a great documentary in terms of cricket. That's a great one to look out for as well. But yeah, so this this kind of work as well, I think, in terms of cricket from the athlete's perspective, cricket being particularly susceptible because matches literally go on for days. Test matches go on for days and days and days. They're out there. And much like American football, football to you, American football to us, and we'll talk about the Super Bowl in a bit. Some of those people are wearing pads and, you know, helmets and, you know, the clothes that they're wearing to keep them safe for the game in times of extreme heat are incredibly incompatible with the physiology of our bodies in terms of maintaining an average heat. And again, it'd be interesting to see, hopefully, hopefully it's manageable, but it'd be interesting to see how the game continues as well as we see more of this extreme heat temperatures, et cetera, of breaks or of, you know, in other sports, we're starting to see increased water breaks or various different ways that we can try and mitigate the impacts of that. But it'd be interesting to see in terms of that, how that progresses. And, and also I'm really interested to see how this particular initiative from Pat Cummins, the Cricket for Climate, lands and drives action, because rather than teaming up with another organisation, he's launched his own thing, which he's spearheading. So I'm very interested to see how that works as well. I think people really take to that. And I think they'll be really interested to see how it progresses. Because he's a well-known player, my guess and then hope is that, you know, the various corners of the cricket world join with him because you want to get the subcontinent. You need to get the subcontinent. You need to get Southern Africa. You need to get the Caribbean, which, as you and I have spoken about in other cases, has, along with South America and Central America, been kind of 
not in the green sports movement so much. Mm -hmm. And so if cricket becomes a nexus of this, then this is a way in for the Caribbean as well. And of course, UK, Ireland, etc. Yeah, definitely. I saw recently as well that the West Indies cricket team have now got a sustainability partner and they're doing carbon footprinting for their latest test match, etc. So again, I think we're just starting to see more of these pockets of action taking place, which is brilliant. So yeah, I think that's great. Great to see more happening in cricket and great to see athletes taking the lead on that as well. So we'll keep an eye on that and see, see how things progress. So the Super Bowl is coming up. Two what is it? Things- is it really? Is it really? I, I, is it coming up? I, I didn't know it was this weekend. We haven't seen any coverage at all. It's been so quiet. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, yeah, I heard that there is a game. <laughs> <laughs> there's one happening. So the That's two it. things I think we really need to talk about here is the fact that there's been a warning about there being unseasonably high temperatures this weekend for the game. And also the fact that the NFL are saying it's the most sustainable Super Bowl again to date based on their efforts. So I think there's a, a few different things to unpack there. But again, in line with what we're talking about for cricket in, in Australia and this, this extreme heat, the Super Bowl now, I was reading, instead of average temperatures of 60 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 15 Celsius, it could be in the 90s, which would be in the low 30s Celsius for us. So that's a big difference when you're wearing a lot of padding. And especially it'll be interesting on a number of different levels on that issue if it is that hot. And let's see, the the game starts at around 3.30 local time in the afternoon. So that would be still very hot. They're playing it at SoFi Stadium, which is this brand new, you know, super advanced stadium, maybe not on the environmental measures, although that's TBD a bit, but it's Mm -hmm. this kind of roofed but open air stadium at the same time and they say they designed it to take advantage of the winds the way the wind flows and that it isn't as hot as you would expect it to be you know if you were just outside in the los angeles area so it'll be interesting to see a how hot it is b and this is always huge from my perspective on this is how will it be covered the extreme heat will nbc sports in the u.s the broadcaster for this year's super bowl Will they cover it and will they link it to climate if they do? And so I'll be watching that more than I watch the commercials, let's just say, to see if that that comes to pass. Things to note, because they, you know, Super Bowl sites are are determined a couple of years in advance. Mm. So I believe next year's game is in Phoenix, Arizona, which you would say, oh, that's, are you kidding? That's like in the desert. But that's an indoor dome stadium. So it's climate controlled. So that will be whitewashed. It won't even be discussed unless maybe outside if it's crazy wet, hot. Then it goes, I believe, to Las Vegas. Again, a desert. Again, indoor stadium. And then it goes to New Orleans, which is Hurricane Katrina was in the, you know, the Superdome where the game will be played Mm -hmm. was of course, the place of immense human suffering in the aftermath of Katrina, gosh, 17 years ago already, which is incredible to even say, but that's a dome stadium. So the weather is, you know, pushed out. And then in 26, what I'm hearing, maybe you have some insight on this. I don't, but I hear the same thing. (laughs) Hotspur Stadium, my Spurs are likely or maybe going to bid for the Super Bowl and they are number one in the sustainability table again. Mm -hmm. We won't mention the regular table. Um, (laughs) And, you know, and so I am kind of dreaming of that happening and somehow the New York Jets being in that Super Bowl. And now you're officially welcome to say you have some really good dreams, Lou. (laughs) It's good to dream. It's good to dream. But I mean, Hey, if the Bengals could make it, the Jets can make it. That's the whole point of sport. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Leicester (laughs) City. Yeah, I mean, surely it would be very freak if there was an issue with extreme weather in London in the middle of February in 2026. So the same as you, I've read some pieces. I have no idea if that's that's happening or not. But yeah, to your point in terms of the movement, et cetera. I think there's a lot of stuff on the environmental side and also the commercials. So I've seen, as I'm sure everyone, the, the Super Bowl, football first, 
then the commercials. <laughs> and there is, the, you know, we've seen coverage of a couple that are climate focused already. So GM have got climate themed advert. But again, bigger conversations that we're going to probably get onto in a different context shortly. But sponsors. One category, and this has a very big climate impact that you're going to be seeing on the ads, is crypto. Yeah. And will there be a discussion around this? I'm not, this won't happen on the broadcast, but in the kind of green sports world and the sports business world and the, the media that is now covering this to say, wait a minute, there are all these crypto ads at, at the Super Bowl. Do people realize the climate impact of, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum? And most people don't. So energy intensive in terms yeah. of that. And yeah, the same with NFTs as well. It's new, it's exciting, people are interested, but again, the climate impact is underpinning all of that. And that has to be, so to me, that has to be a story and that's going to be a future green sports blog story. You can bet on that one, mm. that this needs to get covered and there needs to be innovation. And I know there is in terms of other ways of blockchain technology being much less energy intensive. Yeah. And um, the other one I saw was Ross Aviation, who apparently are advertising and are offering sustainable aviation fuel to customers using their services at Long Beach Airport over the weekend. But again, I think we'll hold on this because I think we're going to have a bigger conversation around sponsorship and the issues around that. But certainly, you know, sustainable aviation fuel where we are right now is the best we can look at in terms of longer haul travel where public transport or or transport by a train, et cetera, is not an option, but certainly an environmental impact on that in terms of aviation travel in. So the commercials will look and see how it comes through. And I think that's always an interesting facet to see how many are climate focused or environment focused. We've seen some in the past. Let's see if that ramps up. It's a good gauge to see the media interest in it. And then the last bit on this is just the NFL saying it's going to be the most sustainable Super Bowl to date, which they've said, you know, year on year, I think they push they push the envelope on this a lot and, sh a lot and shout out to Jack and Susan Grow as well as the rest of the team at NFL Green who lead lead the work on that operation. And we know there's things like, you know, ball aluminium cups will be used again. They do a lot around food recovery to food banks. As you said, it's at SoFi Stadium, which is new and presumably, I don't know the stats, but I presume very energy efficient compared to a lot of older stadiums, a lot of community greening and legacy, et cetera. But what do you, what do you think about the coverage of how sustainable the Super Bowl is going to be? So this has been a real kind of bugaboo for me because to me, the Super Bowl greening is like the classic, if a green Super Bowl tree was in the forest but nobody, and it fell, but nobody was there to see it, would anybody know about it? And I know I mixed up that metaphor and that analogy <laughs> somehow, and I didn't, thankfully I didn't make it a simile, but you get what I mean, that like if you walked out on the street, if we could walk out on the street and talk to someone, if it wasn't COVID, which hopefully it won't be someday soon. And you asked someone, what does the greening of the Super Bowl mean to you? And they would say, what are the Jets in the Super Bowl? Because their color is green or the Philadelphia Eagles. Are they in the Super Bowl? Yeah. This is the podcast, not audio. So I'll just yeah, explain yeah. that I had it was cold and I went for a walk earlier and I had my Jets hat here at the side. <laughs> so I know lose a fan. J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. Anyway. <laughs> So to me, like all of this stuff is great. And I give a kudos to Jack and Susan Grow for their, you know, longstanding commitment to the greening of the Super Bowl and the NFL draft. But the NFL, to me, they don't get a pass on this. They, to me, are not telling the story and they are missing an opportunity. And I just wonder why that is. And I understand that the game is the game and all of that. And of course it is. But when you're talking about, I don't know, seven, eight hours of game day programming, you know, you can't tell me that there could be some shoulder, you know, five minutes in the shoulder programming that talks about the climate, you know, what they're doing, but, and also talking about the challenges, not sugarcoating it, not kumbayaing it. Mm -hmm. I think that is what, they need to be doing and i think a good chunk of their audience would like it some might not you know what they're not going to turn away from the game because of that exactly so to me it actually 
Like I believe, you know, you've got a hundred million people watching this. So if they're planting trees in Los Angeles, that's great. But the hundred million people need to be activated. And then the yeah. people that are staying up late in the UK to watch it like you. <laughs> Mondays are always such a such a hard day after watching Super Bowl Sunday, especially well, when Cincinnati it's on the West Coast. Has a holiday. <laughs> the, the mayor canceled school in Cincinnati on Monday. Yeah. Wow. And I have to say, like, as much as I do love American football, but the last couple of years with work, getting a bit older now, the, the 4 oh, a.m. finish, the 4 a.m. finish has really, really tried me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how we go. We'll see how we go. Maybe some late caffeine will do the trick. But yeah, I think to your point, it's a really important one where I think there's these standout moments in the calendar, like the Super Bowl. I know NFL Green do a lot of work around the draft and the Pro Bowl, et cetera, as well. And I understand that that's within the remit of the league. They organise that. It's what they can directly control and a huge amount of work goes into it. And that's why I think we are massive sports fans. We're massive environmental advocates, et cetera. And also we personally know the people who are really working so hard to make this happen. And we know behind the scenes, the hard yards that go into it, the amount of work to into stakeholder engagement, operational management, logistics, marketing, communications, working with local organizations, like the scale of the work is massive. And that's why I'm, I'm always reticent to push that because I think there is stuff going on but to your point and where I think we are now whilst historically that's been really laudable where we are now with the change in the movement the climate crisis deepening as you said the pickup from mainstream media and the fact that we've moved into a different era it's hard to not question why across 32 teams and what like 270 to 80 regular season games something like that something like that like the clubs now, whether it's an NFL directive or whether the clubs do it themselves, this has to, it can't just be at the final. It can't just be at the draft. We have to see this narrative going through across the clubs year round and it being joined up in some way. And I know there's a lot of clubs and stadiums that are starting that and some are further along than others and everyone's on a journey. But I think, again, there is a, to your point, the narrative and the communications of the output isn't the Super Bowl a brilliant moment to be able to say to fans about what the Bengals or the Rams are doing in their own home stadiums around sustainability and climate change or what you know teams are doing is as you said there's so much coverage there's so much media isn't there an opportunity to join up what clubs are doing year round to this huge moment in the calendar I mean to me it's it's almost like and I, I'm going to be very technical here Duh. <laughs> wow, I mean, science, guys. You know, that was science. Deep. But here it is, right? You guys prove the point with game zero, Tottenham, Chelsea at Tottenham Stadium, where the Super Bowl is going to be in 2026 and the Jets will be in it. You know, a zero carbon game and all of this, vegan options at every concession stand. But to me, the biggest thing out of all of it, was I'm watching the game and Arlo White, the announcer for NBC's coverage of the Premier League, in the middle of the game says, and this is game zero of the Premier League, the first one, you know, zero carbon. He said it. Yeah. The world didn't turn around <laughs> on its axis. It kept going. Like, but that is millions of people watching here. Mm -hmm. And it was, to me, remarkable by its unremarkableness that it was part of the conversation part of yes the, part, yeah that's where it's got to go we don't game, have time for it not to yeah exactly and that game you know the, the impact of that game and the work behind that obviously very very heavily driven by sky sports here in the uk but again a question what are nbc doing you know, as the, the official broadcaster in the US, you know, how are their sat trucks getting there? What are their reporters doing? How are their staff traveling? You know, what's the, again, we look at the NFL, we look at the league, we look at the teams, we look at the local logistics, but the broadcasters are a big part of this as well. And again, as you said, someone like NBC is controlling the output. So doing right. positive efforts themselves and talking about that is a win for them. Yeah. And especially one of the biggest things, I always say this, that at least in the North American sports context construct, and I'm sure it's the case where you are, you know, what do sports commissioners, what keeps them up at night? One thing for sure is how do you get younger audiences to care in this era of attention spans that are nanoseconds long 
and so many distractions. How do you get them to care the way, you know, your generation cared, my generation cared, my parents' generation cared? You may not be able to, but you got to do better than you are. And I'm not saying, oh, if we have a good climate policy and we broadcast it, that's going to make me, a, you know, me, the eight-year-old, a big fan. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to hurt. And yeah. as you keep doing it, you're going to become more relevant to a generation that is going to demand action on this. Yeah, definitely. And that outreach is crucial. Again, I've seen a number of pieces written up this year about the fact that nowhere near the stadium, nowhere near the broadcast, all of the Super Bowl Sunday parties that will take place across the whole of the US and globally in terms of it being a moment for people to come together and watch the game and chat and have fun and eat, etc. The fact that there'll be a huge spike in heavy carbon foods. So there's sort of a lot more chicken, a lot more ribs, a lot more meat, etc. So again, I've seen a few pieces around, can we at least try and publicise some plant-based options or, you know, where people go through this big, almost like they're doing their Thanksgiving shop right. <laughs> and they go to the supermarket. It's equivalent, isn't it? There's so, you know, so much into that. Again, the impact of that has an environmental consequence because people are eating and drinking a lot more than they usually would on your average Sunday. And a lot of that, if it's, if it's carbon intensive foods, has an impact on the planet. Amen. I'll have a plant-based Super Bowl on Sunday. Um, <laughs> Send us photos. And you'll just maybe be awake. <laughs> yeah. I'll be <laughs> sipping coffee and just trying to keep my eyes open with matches. But I'm really, yeah. So the Super Bowl, I think there's, there's loads there. I think the big element there as well, you know, around the commercials and the advertising and sponsorship, which we've covered, spent a lot of time talking at the Super Bowl, but I know you wanted to bring up some of the coverage in Australia around sponsorship. So why don't you lead, lead that? Great. Yeah. And this is also kind of in real time. You had right around this, when the Olympics started a week or so ago, you had this yin and yang situation going on. Maybe it was a week before that during the Australian Open when Tennis Australia parted ways with Santos, which is a gas company in Australia, that they had just started a sponsorship deal. They were one year into it. And there was a lot of organized pressure in Australia to criticize this deal because Tennis Australia has done yeoman's work on sustainability and they're part of the Sport for Climate Action framework. And, and of course, Melbourne in that area has been buffeted by wildfires and pollution coming from, from them and, and also loss of animal life, some human life and property. And it forced Tennis Australia to scuttle the deal, which mm -hmm. was a huge, a massive win, in my opinion, for grassroots activism, showing that sport, if they're talking the climate talk, they have to walk the climate walk and they can't speak out of both sides of their mouths. Fast forward one day, 24 hours later, the Australian Olympic Committee announces a partnership, a big Australian dollar level partnership with, with another mining company that is uh, Hancock. And the owner of it, it's privately held, the owner of it is herself a climate denier. And you can't make this up. And then the Australian Olympic Committee, which has also talked about how green they are, you know, kind of tries to put a shield up against themselves. And I'm paraphrasing when I say, oh yeah, no, we're, we're moving towards carbon neutrality and we're a member of the Sport for Climate Action framework. And we are a member of Sport Environment Alliance, which is the great group run by Sheila uh, Gwen down in Australia for sustainable sport. And I'm like, this puts those two organizations in a bind because then they have to defend being associated with the Australian Olympic Committee, which is associated with this fossil fuel and mining company. And I am not naive, of course. There's a lot of money that this company is putting in, and that helps things like Australia volleyball and Australia swimming and a bunch of other sports have funding so these athletes can be able to compete on the world stage. But to me, it's, it's so wrong on so many levels and I'd love your your thoughts. Yeah, I think to the first point in terms of I think it was it was at three I think it was three fifty dot org, the local chapter of 
350.org yep. in Australia that sort Australia. Of put the pressure on and said this, you know, with Santos and Tennis Australia saying this is sport washing, et cetera, and credit to Tennis Australia, as you said, reduced a multi-year deal for one year and have moved on from that. I just, a sidebar shout out to, as you said, grassroots activism, but also the ability for people to use their voice and have impact because I don't know how many times we have this conversation that people are like, yeah, I care deeply about this, but I haven't contacted my club to say what are they doing on sustainability or I haven't contacted the league. So yes, they're an organised campaigning group, but also just a sidebar shout out that if you do care really passionately about this, there are organisations that you can be a part of and you can use your voice to drive these sorts of pressure and make a change. So a great reminder of that. You don't have to be yourself the decision maker inside a sports organisation to enact change. And then the second part, yeah, I just think this conversation around sponsorship is only getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the issue here is that, to your point, commitments can be made and they can be credible commitments. And depending on who the decision maker was, that's out there. That's in the the public domain now that those commitments have been made. The conversation, I don't know about the Australian Olympic Committee and I don't know about this specifically, but generally sometimes decisions made in the sales or commercial part of the organisation is siloed off from perhaps other parts of the organisation that are more sustainability or climate focused. And that is something that needs to change really, really quickly. So commercial arms of sports organisations that have made external commitments that have come out publicly about this stuff. It is, I don't think it ever was palatable, but I think you are not getting away with that anymore. We've seen it. So like, this is a great example, Lou, and I'm glad you brought it up in this conversation, but we see it constantly. And I think there's, There's a couple of elements to unpack with this. I think, yes, let's understand that sport has been the same as all other parts of the economy. It's been hammered by COVID and they are crying out for support. And as you said, that money, especially for a a National Olympic Committee, is going to go to supporting athletes, fulfilling their dreams and being able to train and compete and perform, etc. So that money, hopefully for the most part, is going to be spent in a really strong way. But whether it's them or other other similar sports organizations i think we've got to a stage now in terms of the court of public opinion that you cannot accept money off these heavy carbon organizations at the bare minimum you need to have some purpose bedded into that decision you have to have a narrative of this sponsor is now going to sponsor us but we are working with them collaboratively to reduce their impact as well we're using this money for these environmental goals some people will say claire that's still sport washing and i don't necessarily disagree the activist within me you know we obviously want to get rid of heavy carbon sponsors in sport as quickly as possible and i had this same issue when i started looking at adding sponsorship into our sport positive leagues the issues with this is that we're very focused on the environment and whilst, yes, we want to come off fossil sponsors and, and fossil-based economy, we also don't want to then do that at the expense of other areas where, you know, other big sponsors that perhaps are responsible for huge amounts of single-use plastic or a gambling companies which have huge tolls on our society or alcohol or junk food and other things where we're facing obesity pandemics, etc. So the very, very black and white version is let's get fossil out of sport and it's not palatable at all. The more pragmatic approach is how are we going to wean off this? The same as happened with tobacco, etc. What is the plan? And also, if these decisions are made to accept money from heavy sponsors, what's the narrative? What's the purpose? Why have you accepted that money and how is it going to be spent? I think that now is the bare minimum of what we need for these conversations to happen. I think people just won't accept it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, but it's not even the, I wouldn't call it the activist in me, but I just know mm-hmm. that we are in a, we're in a crisis. Yeah. And I believe that sport and something like a National Olympic Committee, which is touting its greenness, has a responsibility. And okay, in this case, if they are saying, without this money, the Volleyball Australia, I'm making it up, would have to shut down or Mm -hmm. some, some, you know, but my response is, okay, so let's say Hancock and the woman who, you know, bankrolls it didn't exist. What Mm -hmm. would you do? Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that the Australian Olympic committee would just fold up their tent, go into a corner and sit down and just give up. No, they would find other 
wealthy individuals or other companies, or maybe it'd be a consortium of that, they would find a way without that stain, that stink, to get the funding. And you make the example, you brought it up and it was, you were right on with the tobacco industry. And I'm old enough to remember tobacco ad being dominant in sports here in the US. And then when they banned it or were talking about banning it, oh, the hue and cry was like, we are going to be broke. The sports industry is going to be devastated. Mm -hmm. That took a short-term hit. And I mean, like a few minutes hit. And then it was like, it didn't, they didn't miss it. Or in a, in a kind of a related, but different context. I remember and much more recently in New York, when Bloomberg was the mayor, he banned smoking in bars Mm -hmm. and restaurants inside. And oh my gosh, the hue and cry from bar and restaurant owners was just, we are going to be put out of business. No one's going to come anymore. If you can't, no smoking in bars and restaurants. And before COVID anyway, and the bars were doing pretty darn fine in New York City. So I I think it's crocodile tears. We adapt. And you adapt and adapt quickly. So I don't accept I think the heavy fossil fuels, and obviously no one has a monopoly on virtue, as uh, Alan Hershkowitz says, but there are lines that need to be drawn. You know, to me, would a car company, which of course burns fossil fuels, be okay? Well, if it depends if they're working on electric vehicles, which they all are, and and they're lobbying for mile, you know, emissions efficiency standards and in, in laws, etc. No problem, because they're trying. They're already trying to make. A s- solutions or yeah. your example earlier about sustainable aviation fuel, making it up. If Delta is a big investor in sustainable a- aviation fuel, yes, they burn fossil fuels to get people all over the world to play these sports that we love to watch. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're demanding that, but hey, they're trying to be part of the solution. Yeah. And that's it. I think this is where the complexity comes in, isn't it? You kind of, what's the, what's the sliding scale of what we're okay with heavy fossil aviation, car manufacturers, then financial organizations that invest in this exploration, etc. It's not all they do, but a lot of prospecting, mining, drilling companies have to be financed. So there's a lot of organizations, a lot of people's pension funds are actually paying for this stuff. So there's, again, there's this multi-layered side that we really need to unpick. And again, part of the reason we didn't include sponsorship in our league, the Sport Positive League this year, is that Whilst we have our own views, part of our work is, you know, you can't be judge and jury on these things. We need to work collaboratively, which we're doing at the minute, actually, in industry to say from many, many different stakeholders, what are we saying is the gold standard in this? And then what are we saying is the road towards that? So if the gold standard is organisations that have absolutely no impact globally, it doesn't exist. That so, doesn't exist. Exactly. Because we live in a fossil fuel, so we have to be realistic. But yeah. what are we saying is realistic? So obviously companies with purpose, companies that have got ethical standards, companies that are working towards being more sustainable, et cetera, are working towards certain external goals, et cetera. But to your point, even you know something like a Hancock prospecting, they're part of Sports for Climate Action, for, oh, sorry, the, Olymp- the Australian Olympic Committee working with them. They're part of Sport for Climate Action Framework. They're part of Sport Environment Alliance, et cetera. They have therefore got external targets to this. So how does, you know, the Hancock prospecting and what they're doing in that work with the Australian Olympic Committee, how does that come together in terms of the AOC as saying, we're making these commitments, but we're working with this organisation? There's, there's a huge amount of complexity there about what this looks like. And I think... I certainly don't have the answer. I have opinions and I kind of, again, I think we're in a a very interesting position because whilst we have our own views, we also work incredibly closely and work with sports organisations and chat to them every day about these challenges and what's happening. And I think for me, part of it is working with the individuals on the ground who are driving this work, who've got nothing to do with this decision making and their work's undermined by these other decisions of taking money off certain organisations. And it's on a human level, it's difficult to see those people who are having worked so hard to make an organization sustainable and make commitments and drive goals and their work to be undermined by these decisions where from the outside don't look credible, they don't look authentic, and they look as though they're sport washing. So I think 
such a big conversation. We could talk about that for age, but I think hopefully, at least for the, the listeners of, of some ideas, and I certainly, I know Lou would probably, in response to this podcast, would love to get your thoughts as well in terms of what people's views are on how, what the road looks like in terms of moving away from this. That would be swell. I would love that. And I feel badly for the people who are the sustainability folks at the Australian Olympic Committee who, you know, their work was undermined by people above them who they have no or very little impact on. And I now I think the pressure goes to the sport for climate action frameworks of the world and the sport environment alliances because they have been put out there as shields. AOC saying, we're good. We're members of these two great green frameworks. Well, now what does this sport for climate action framework tell the AOC, the Australian Olympic Committee? I think that's a really serious issue for the for the framework. Yeah. And something that needs to be considered going forward, because the, the UN Sports for Climate Action Framework is a UN voluntary commitment where you commit to principles and then you commit to the targets therein. And then you have to show your planning of how you're going to get to those targets and you have to show your reporting. So at the minute there's no the UN, it's a voluntary commitment. And the UN obviously is a convener. It isn't a regulator in that sense. It's not GRI. It's not those sorts of organizations. So actually, at the moment, there's no you cannot do this. You can only do this. It's up to each individual organization to after they've made the commitment plan and plot their journey to how they're going to reduce that but again this is where it becomes quite interesting and Lou we could talk about this forever this is where it becomes quite interesting because the Australian Olympic Committee they have to commit to reducing their carbon footprint by 50 percent by 2030 and net zero by 2040 but at the minute that doesn't apply to sponsors that's only the organization so through the sponsorship the sponsor organization their footprint and what their impact isn't part of this but then where does it stop? How could sports organisations possibly make these commitments and try and drive this change if all of their suppliers, all of their sponsors had to make the same commitments? Because, as you know, the complexity of a sports organisation's financing and the suppliers it works with and the sponsors it has at different levels, et cetera, is so huge. That how would you ever get that commitment to do that? And then if you couldn't, does that mean you as a sports organization don't try and reduce your impact because your sponsors and partners can't? Again, you go down another rabbit hole of where the responsibility lies with this sports organization and they can make these commitments in good faith. But I think the court of public opinion is a much bigger tool now than anything else, because once you make that external commitment, it's out there. You've said many correct things and insightful things during this conversation. Perhaps the most insightful is that we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> Always. Um, right? All I would say is, to end my part of it, is that I think the sports organizations, all of what you're saying is true. It's complex. You know, they have all these different companies they work with, and then their supply chains beyond that. But you know what? The sports organizations have tremendous social capital and tremendous social power because of the energy of the fans and the money, the commitments of the millions, if not billions of sports fans that feed into them. And I think that up until recently, you know, they've chosen not to push their suppliers. They've chosen not to turn away from bad deals because it's harder. They have to then search for another partner. They have to do a little more work or maybe a lot more work. Well, you know what? We don't have time for you to. And you know what? Sports athletes and sports teams always do stuff that's hard. Mm -hmm. So, no, that's not acceptable anymore. In my book. Lou Blastine has spoken. <laughs> it yeah. is not acceptable. Agree. Agree. Well, for our podcast, the Planet Sport podcast, I always finish with a sort of top tip, not top tip though, but something you've learned. You've obviously been in the space for a while and we've covered loads of the big news stories here and it's been so awesome to chat because I think most people know Green Sports Blog and Eco Athletes with you and Sport Positive with me. We don't need to bang on about what we're doing, but we've been able to pick apart some of the stories and some of the big issues have come out through that, which has been brilliant. But for my side, I love to finish with sort of a, what you've learned, what you wish you'd known, you know, you've been doing this for a long time now. You've got a lot of stories. We've had a lot of conversations. 
if someone's listening to this and they're listening because they're getting they're getting around this themselves what's a piece of advice that you wish you'd had at the start great question <laughs> aside from how do you make money at this <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. but a legitimate question i think i would have wanted to have an earlier focus on the role of the media in sport in also pushing for more environmentally forward thinking, forward acting actions and climate forward actions. I got to it, but I wish I had gotten to it earlier because I believe that is a huge part of the green sports stool, you know, one of the legs that has just been kind of pushed to the side, but finally now is starting to be a part of it. Yeah, brilliant. I love that. Well, I think that's a brilliant, a brilliant place to finish. We've had such a great chat and so much to unpick and so much to cover there and timely as well. So we both hope you've enjoyed the podcast today and it's going out for the first time for us. So the Climate Sport podcast is ours and it's going out on Lose as well. So you can hear it in two different places. So wherever you're tuning in, good to Enjoy and thank you. Amazing. As always, Lou, a pleasure. You know, I always learn interesting stuff when I talk with Claire Poole and can't wait until the next time we get to podcast. In the meantime, you can catch the climate of sport wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you again for listening to Green Sports Pod and for reading Green Sports Blog. Follow us on Twitter at Green Sports Blog and on Instagram at Green Sports Blogger. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.